0: This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2,
1: 24 hours a day. And today we have a very exciting interview with a bit of a legend amongst some of the uh, environmental movement, Rob Hopkins. Um, one of the founders of the Transition Movement, an author, a long-term activist and campaigner, a speaker, and now here to tell us all about, yeah, sort of everything that has he's done, including the Transition Movement, if that's not something you've heard of before, as well as other projects on the horizon. Rob's based in Totnes and grew up in Bristol. And yeah, welcome, Rob. Thanks for coming and joining us.
0: Hey, thanks so much for asking me on.
1: Yeah well so yes tell us tell us a bit about yourself. I know I I did a very brief introduction there but tell us a bit about yourself sort of like I know you've been involved in the climate movement for a long time but how how did that first start?
0: Well yeah hi I um how did it start? I guess uh, when I was in my early 20s I did a big adventure, and I went off and I travelled around in India and Pakistan and places. And I travelled with a guy from Australia who was uh, who was into permaculture and who lived in the first permaculture um, kind of eco-village place in Australia, and who kept talking about permaculture, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And and by the end of our spending our time together, I still had no idea what he was (laughs) talking about. I think many
1: people who speak to people about permaculture feel similarly. But yes, go on.
0: But he 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 kind of sowed a seed, uh, and 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 I was curious. And so when I got back to England, then somebody gave me a copy of Bill Mollison's book, Permaculture Designers Manual, which is like the was at the time was the great sort of Bible of the permaculture movement, and. and it included this word earth repair. It had this concept of earth repair. You know, the idea that he was somebody who'd gone around the world to gather up all the things we needed in order to put back, to allow the world's ecosystems to be repaired and put back together and enhanced. And I was kind of hooked, really. And at the time, there was a Bristol permaculture group. I'm sure there still is. And I, and I badgered them until they put on a permaculture course it's normally taught in a two-week thing called a permaculture design course. So I did that in 1992, um, and it kind of rewired my brain. Really, and <laughs> it just got me thinking about everything in a completely different way. And uh, and then I went to UE in Bristol and did one of the. There was a, they had one of the very first sustainability degrees in the world. Actually, was was in Bristol at the University of the West of England, and I did that. And then. Uh, since then I've just been trying to put it into practice I lived in Ireland for 10 years and did lots of very practical sustainability stuff building straw bale houses and cob houses I set up the first two-year full-time permaculture course in the world at an adult education college there and then in 2005 with my family we all moved back to the UK and to Totnes and then that was really when the transition movement started so it's been a it's, it's wow. not been a conventional career path, I'm
1: saying, I'm saying <laughs> no.
0: like that, but it's going to work for me just about.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you've done sort of a bit of everything. So, um, yeah, tell us about the transition uh, movement, because I'll be honest, it's not something I've heard a lot about, but looking into it, I'm like, oh, maybe I maybe I should have heard a lot about it. But uh, what's, <laughs> what's your, what's your elevator? know, not elevator pitch, but what, how would you describe it to someone completely new to the idea?
0: I would describe it as a movement of communities who are reimagining and rebuilding the world. And it is a it is a model something that we started here in Totnes, which was really as an inquiry to say, you know, we we're aware of the scale and the urgency of the climate crisis that we're in now. It also appears that governments are aren't and maybe are never capable of acting quickly and ambitiously enough to something like this. And maybe uh, and what would. What would it look like if a, if a large part of the solution came from communities organising themselves better? Uh, and so in Totnes, it was really about we, we we had this saying at the beginning of the transition movement: if we do, if we try and act, uh, if we try and do this on our own, it'll be too little. If we wait for governments, it'll be too late. But if we um, if we act as communities, it might just be enough, and it might just be in time. So it explores that element of. Well, what can we do here with the people we have, the skills that we have, the passions we have, the resources that we can muster? And uh, we were just trying to develop something that might have some kind of an impact here in this little town of 9,000 people. And actually, it started to spread very, very quickly. And so my work for the last 15 years or so has really been supporting this movement as it spread into like Brazil and Chile and Japan and South Korea and Italy and Belgium and people just hearing about it and self-organizing and, and starting their own transition groups. And, you know, I think often people can't quite imagine that, that, something like that can work without somebody controlling it all as a total control freak in the middle and actually for me it's that thing of when you let something go and you let it self organize it it's always fascinating and it's always uh, intriguing so often it's you know there's groups there's something like three four hundred groups across the uk and uh, they they do anything ranging from small projects like starting community gardens or uh, promoting cycling or whatever up to really ambitious things like in bath bath and west community energy which grew out of transition bath and transition caution has now raised like 16 million pounds for community energy projects in the city uh you know so there are really big ambitious things that have come out of it as well
1: well and yeah i mean i think that will resonate with a lot of people the sort of feeling trapped between the powerlessness of individuals and the powerlessness of sometimes it feels like influencing big government. Um, I think it's fascinating what you're saying about like organising structures in terms of horizontal organising structures versus vertical ones and how decisions are made and how sustainable that is then. I mean, in terms of the, I guess, what 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 kind of differentiates a transition network from, I don't know, someone, someone organising community garden by themselves or like a community that does it without the transition network inspiration. Is there a particular theme or vibe to it that makes it different in your experience?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's you know, going back to talking about how permaculture rewired my brain, I think what, what happened when what what permaculture does is that is that you find yourself thinking in in systems. It's like a crash course in systems thinking in a way that's you don't even notice is happening really. And you start to see the connections between everything. So I think you know, there are lots of places where people start a, um, a community garden, for example, and that's fantastic. And there's also places where people start a community garden and then that might open up a conversation about, well, you know, what do we need to do in order to ensure that this community garden is going to last for a long time? Or how might we connect this community garden up with the local with the local NHS, with the local hospital. And actually, if we're thinking about community food, maybe we need to be thinking about community energy. And if we're thinking about community energy, maybe we need to be thinking about uh, putting in place the infrastructure that allows people to invest in that. And and so I for me, I think where the transition town bit comes in is that it's like the bigger... It's like a bigger framework that you might put around a community garden that allows us to, to think of its impact in a bigger, more ambitious kind of a way. So in the transition movement, we also have a, an aspect of it which has evolved since its inception, which is called inner transition, which is about saying this is not just a transition which is about solar panels and organic carrots. You know, this is, this is something that is generational work this is something that will take us a long time and there's a lot to do and ensuring the the sustainability like the the durability the resilience of the groups that who are doing this work is really important so in a transition is wh- when people do trainings around transition and they run in a transition it's all about that stuff like how do you form groups that are able to work together and don't all fall out with each other after six months how do we make good decisions how do we organize ourselves how do we manage the the times when it all feels hopeless and when we run out of energy how do we support each other through that how do we manage grief and despair so it's 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 a whole bunch of tools that often if you're just working on a community garden you you might not you you might not think are necessarily needed so so transition is really has really been a a self-organizing experiment now in fifty countries around the world, with which has generated a whole lot of lived experience of things that work, of things that maybe don't work, of tools, of activity. It's a network that you can tap into, and uh, you know, and speak to people all around the world who are doing similar things. If some people come up with a good idea, that idea can spread and be replicated through that movement very, very quickly. So, yeah, so that's why, for me, that's what's different about. A single project and i think when we started transition as well and we had this narrative which was this is an emergency we need to organize at the community scale this concept of transition gave a kind of created a sort of an umbrella where whether people were doing community gardens community energy projects whatever they were doing and they might have just thought they were doing some random thing out on on their own it gave a sort of a story uh, and a context within which they fitted and they oh that's what we're doing we're kind of a transition sort of a thing uh which was also really nice to see
1: yeah and it sounds like the um the net as you say it's a being a network and people being able to contact you know others across the world who are going through similar yes <laughs> maybe struggling in similar ways or coming up against similar barriers is maybe one of the values of it and i think you provide training as well don't you for people who are setting up their own group or wanting to learn more about this way of doing things
0: yes there's a there's um, a thing called transition launch which is the training for people who want to get started which distill it's like a two-day training which distills down all the learning uh, and i would just say that for, for england and wales now there is an organization called transition together which is uh, which supports transition the transition movement in England and Wales and then we're just about to launch uh some seed funding so so local groups can apply for up to ten thousand pounds of funding for projects so if you go online and search transition together you can find out about trainings but you can also find out about um this funding round that we're doing which can be used to 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 bring in trainers as well it can be used for all sorts of different things
1: well, it's f- quite fascinating there. Um, and so, moving on, so you, so you haven't obviously sat, you haven't sat still. You've been doing quite a lot aside from, you know, helping run this whole thing. Um, what you were telling me off air earlier about something you've got coming up called the Atmos Project, um, that's a local thing, and that's very ambitious. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So all across this country and you know around Bristol as well, there are many places where there are brownfield sites. So a place where a company would run a business until it wasn't profitable anymore, a factory or whatever sort of thing. And then they would just leave. And those abandoned industrial sites are everywhere. And developers don't tend to touch them because they're more expensive to develop because you have to get all the buildings off the site and deal with contamination and stuff. And so here in in Totnes, probably the most ambitious thing to come out of the transition movement and other other groups here is something called uh, Atmos Totnes, which is anybody who's ever been to this town and arrived here by train will know that next to the station there's a big old uh, derelict industrial site, which used to be the biggest employer in the town. It was a big milk factory. Closed in 2007... And since then, the community have been working to become the developer, inspired by Coin Street community builders in London, which is the biggest community-led development project in the country, um, and and by the belief that we could do that down here. And it's a long story, but we basically uh, reached a point with the with the owners Dairy Crest that said that we would. Become the developer. We ran a consultation in a town of 9,000 people that took ideas from more than 4,000 people. We master planned it based on what the community said it needed. So, almost entirely afford, truly affordable housing, rented housing, uh, new workspace for, for new enterprise. Uh, you know, we with and then we used a power that the government gave to communities called a community right to build order, which said that if you had a referendum, that would get you planning permission. So we had a referendum. Eighty-six percent of local people voted for, who voted voted for it to go ahead. Uh, and then, so, you, so
1: the, did you get the local council to host the referendum? Sorry, or is it something you organised yes, yourself? Oh, yes, wow. so, so,
0: so the local council have to support the process. Yeah, and mm. then and then we had a referendum, and then. Um, and then the last stage of it was that we would then buy the site from the owner. And in 2020, when we were a day away from signing a contract, we had spent eight months negotiating. The owners told us, actually, we sold it to somebody else. Oh, no. Yeah, we sold it to a private company from Essex who make oh, no. mastics <laughs> oh, we And we had raised and invested a million pounds at that point to get to that stage. It was outrageous. And we then found out that the guy who... Had, had made the sale in the company uh, who we had been negotiating with in good faith for eight months. Uh, and the guy he sold it to were brothers-in-law when they made the deal. Um. He was just outrageous. So we have been fighting ever since to get the site into into community ownership. We've done all sorts of different things. They have put in two dreadful planning applications, both of which have been refused and uh, are now appealing. So in December, we have a public inquiry in Totnes where the community and the council will be uh, trying to uphold the, the refusals and they will be trying to get them overturned. If we manage to uh, win the appeal and get their applications refused, then we are hopefully very close to then our local authority using their power of compulsory purchase to buy the site to enable the project to go ahead. So it's a really, really important initiative because... There are communities up and down the country in a similar situation where development is something that happens to them rather than something that happens by them. And they sit surrounded by brownfield sites that are a dangerous magnet for antisocial behaviour and just a wasted opportunity. So we, we continue to put a lot of time and effort into this project because it matters for this town, but it also really matters nationally in terms of what people think is possible when they think of, of development and land use.
1: Yeah, in terms of setting a precedent as well. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds like quite the epic struggle. I could foresee it being made into a film someday. It'll, it'll, it'll make a
0: fantastic <laughs> Netflix series one day. It's got some great villains. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And the, the brother in law link is just, you shouldn't be shocked. No, well, you should be shocked, but I'm, I'm not. And I'm just like, that's so typical. And I think, yeah, um, highlights some of the, 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 distrust people have in institutions and par at the minute absolutely. in terms of corruption. wow absolutely oh well good luck with all that that signs thank you watch quite, this space quite the epic battle do let us know um if i don't see it in the news do let us know once you have the result and um so thank we can so update listeners. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yes Yeah and so yes uh, you've got a couple I mean yes as if this wasn't enough you have a couple other things on the go so you've also um, started doing a podcast regularly is that right?
0: I start like many people. I I started a podcast during lockdown. <laughs> in the first lockdown, oh, all well, my work has disappeared. What will I do? Oh, I know. I'll start a podcast. <laughs> so, the, so the podcast grew out of the last book that I wrote, which was called "From What Is to What If," which was uh, unleashing the power of imagination to create the future we want. Which was a which was a a look at well, what is the state of health of our imagination in uh in whenever 2020 it was then I guess 2019 and uh because climate change demands that we reimagine everything but I I feel like our collective imagination muscle is just not up to the not up to it somehow and as bell hooks once said what we cannot imagine cannot come into being and uh so that was that was what the book was about and then the podcast is called from what if to what next so every episode and we've now we just published episode ninety of the podcast uh, every episode is based on a different what if question, and we always have two guests and I had a rule from the very beginning to never do any episodes with two white male guests on it and yeah. um, so we um, so every episode is based on a different what if question, and we always start by. Uh, I always start by telling them that that in my town we built a time machine and we're going to get into it together and we're going to travel to 2030, which is the 2030 that resulted from whatever it is that we're talking about happening. So it's radically lower carbon, more just, more equal, more fair. It delights in its diversity. And we're going to go there and take a walk around. And for me, it's such an interesting tool because so often activists and campaigners just focus on what it is they're fighting at that time and but deep within them there is a vision of what the future would be like if that was implemented that we don't normally hear because of because we're not often so good at talking in that kind of a way yeah i think and it's so, also
1: the fear of sounding silly because sometimes you know what we what we hope for a utopia you know um is so far removed from the everyday that to even sort of say it lied, so you've Feel like you're not going to be taken seriously, or people are going to start dismissing you as a crackpot.
0: Yeah, I mean, which is why, which is why I always said we always travel to 2030 because I'm not really interested in utopia.
1: <laughs> and what I'm
0: interested in, and actually, utopia is often used as this sort of dismissive. Oh, that's very utopian. Like, what really? You know, the the idea that we, you know, for me, all most nations in the world sign up to the Paris Agreement, which is not ambitious enough. But let's say we manage to actually do what we signed up to in the Paris Agreement. That would mean that by 2030, we would have cut our carbon emissions in half and be firmly on the direction to zero about 15 years after that. So so what interests me is what would it feel like to be in that 2030 where that scale of change had already happened and there was an excitement about that and people could see their lives were better as a result and people could see the world around them improving and that mental health was improving and that the air they were breathing was improving and that there were more jobs created by this and there was this sense of real excitement and purpose about it that for me is far more interesting than some perfect utopia in a thousand years time so so that's the world that i take people to in the time machine. And it's a really, really interesting... uh, A lot of them find it really interesting because they don't often speak like that. So, yeah, so that's the podcast. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, like, as I say, we've done about 90 episodes and they range everything from what if we had a universal basic income to what if we address the trauma that lies underneath the world's problems to what if, I don't know, what if... uh, What if the world went vegan? We did one on, you know, so it 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 allows people to kind of test drive different ways the future could be i guess it's been a lot of fun
1: yeah and it, it sounds, like you say imagining just yeah playing a with the ideas of how the future could look can be really and a really important part of keeping going keeping morale up as well if people are like yeah knowing what you're aiming for rather than just what you're fighting against um can be really powerful
0: yeah 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 absolutely because we I think we get so so easily overwhelmed by the scale of everything and and actually the, a lot of the inspiration that I take in the work of the, so so I, I, I do the podcast uh, and then I do a lot of public speaking as you said at the beginning. And when I do and i've and I've become more and more fixated on this question of what if we had a time machine? Like what if, what if you can help people to, in as, in as experiential a way as possible, step into what the future could be like. So there's a, uh, so there's an amazing activist in the US called Rashida Phillips, who has developed this approach called black quantum futurism, which is just awesome, (laughs) which is all about uh, using time travel. As a working in, she works in Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, very poor neighborhood being impacted by gentrification. And she has all this whole way she talks about time and time travel. And she creates these things called Community Futures Labs, where people get to come in and, and talk about the future that they would like to see. And, uh, and I, I the, Don DeLillo, the novelist, once said, longing on a large scale is what makes history. And so for me, I feel like if we just talk in the, in the environmental movement, the climate movement, if we just talk about collapse and extinction all the time, that doesn't cultivate longing. And so one of the, I'm doing a project called Field Recordings from the Future where I go and record things that already sound like the future needs to sound like, car-free neighbourhoods, bicycle rush hours, beaver rewilding projects. And then I work with this amazing young ambient electronic artist called mr kit who then turns them into pieces of music and my brief to him is that they should cultivate a nostalgia for the future um and i'm just starting research now on a new book project which is going to be about time travel as a tool for activists like what if we uh, are able to uh Use sort of positive visioning of, of of the future and have the tools for that, in order to uh, open up new possibilities. And for me, a lot of the inspiration for that comes from Black women activists in the U.S. There's a really interesting movement of people, Adrienne Marie Brown. Uh, Mariam Kaba, people who use speculative fiction and science fiction as a way of exploring different kinds of futures, the black quantum futurism stuff. There are people doing amazing work around the world in far more uh, um, difficult, stressful situations uh, who who use time travel and futures and radical hope in ways that I think could really, really benefit the climate movement and the environmental movement and we need to be much better at bringing those things together i think which is what i'm trying to do in this new project
1: goodness yeah well, i mean it sounds really interesting and and you're also finally as if that wasn't enough you're also <laughs> writing a new book i hear
0: well yeah that's the that's that's this um, this time travel well actually there's two i'm actually writing two books <laughs> simultaneously of course you are well, well one of which is a one of which we haven't really started yet but which is going to be a comic book working with an amazing belgian cartoonist which is going which accompanies the music project so it's going to be about us building a time machine and traveling to 2030 to gather all these recordings and what did we find but then the the book book is 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 about this idea of time travel as a as a tool for activists and uh, and I'm doing some really fascinating interviews with people who are doing amazing work on this and what's the neuroscience as well about when we allow ourselves to imagine the future there's an amazing i'm off to plymouth on friday to meet a a psychologist who's one of the people who works with this idea of something called functional imagery training where they work with people who maybe eat too much or or who have addiction issues and they they help them to 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 imagine the future where the changes they've made have already happened but to imagine it in a multi-sensory way like what does it imagine you've really cracked it in terms of having a habit where you go running every morning. Imagine running in the, and you can feel the sun on your skin and you can, you're out under the trees. Or imagine stepping out of the shower after you've done that and the endorphins kick in. And So people can attach multisensory images to it and can attach an emotion to it as well. They can really imagine what they will be feeling like at that time. And what it does, it creates a, a kind of a new north star in their lives and the research on on that people change habits and then stick to those changes uh, in a really extraordinary kind of a way. And so I'm really interested in what does it look like if we apply that to, to climate and to the changes that, that, that we have to make and the way that we talk about this. Um, yeah, so it'll be uh, – basically I'm researching between now and Christmas and then writing – until next summer and it'll be out sometime early 2024 and it'll be yeah it'll be a it'll be a, it'll be slightly more bonkers than books <laughs> before because it's going to be about like time travel and all of that sort of stuff but uh, uh yeah. i think i hope people will enjoy it
1: no but i think <laughs> the site psych- the psychology of these things and the psychology of implementing changes is a fascinating one and probably something the environmental movement hasn't Quite studied enough, so it would be it will be really interesting to read that and sort of see how you know how, how are people inspired, what inspires people, what keeps them going. Um, because I think also the climate change can seem like such a broad goal, and it re- working on it, um, being an activist can take up so much uh, time and energy that to keep your motivation going, I think having something concrete to focus on to imagine. Can be really powerful, and I think that's a a balance that we don't always get right in the climate movement. So that will be really yeah. interesting.
0: I mean, I, I I always there's some amazing there's a an activist called um, uh, no uh, uh, an artist called Camille Turner in Canada who does this amazing work about slavery that's called uh, the Afro Research Labs where she takes a space and lights it in a particular way. And then she has all of these kind of laminated uh, documents from the 1800s about slavery, because everybody knows about the slave trade in the US. Less people know about it in Canada, but there was a big slave trade in Canada, which has sort of disappeared from the historical record. So she finds all of these documents and lays them out. And then people come in and just sit and look through them and are able to start to piece together in their minds what happens adverts of people offering rewards for slaves that have run away or slaves for sale, auctions coming up, or wills where people are leaving their slaves and their wills and all this sort of stuff. And her role is that she plays a time traveller from the future who is just there to observe people making these discoveries. So she dresses in this particular sort of white stuff Uh, white kit, clothes, and then with this sort of head thing on. And she stands in her and somebody else. They just stand in the corner as the Afronauts who've come from the future to observe this. And it's a very beautiful, powerful, kind of moving way that she works. And I always think, you know, if somebody was to... If you could go back in time, you'd want to go and sit next to Rosa Parks on that bus, which must have been terrifying for her to do that, and sit next to her and go, do you know what? This is so important that you're doing this. And you don't know this now, but in 10 years, there's going to be a Civil Rights Act passed in this country, inspired by what you're doing in this moment. And thank you so, so much for doing this. And I wonder, you know, whether in the climate movement, there's a role for us to, for some people to better play that future role, because for so many people, it feels very lonely and frightening to be doing that activism. You look at people doing just stop oil work at the moment, I mean, really, really emotionally impactful work and to have to bring the future into that space that says no 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 what you're doing is is absolutely the right thing to be doing and when we look back from 20 years in the future we salute and honor the the work that you do now i think it adds in a kind of a dimension that can otherwise be missing from the work that we do
1: wow yes well i mean that that sounds fascinating so yeah i if people want to uh hear about if people want to listen to the podcast or follow your work, keep uh, on top of when the book's coming out, what's the best way for people to follow you, stay on top of the news?
0: So you can find the podcast on, what do they say, everywhere you get your podcast. But also if you if you felt like, if you listen and you enjoy it, then it really helps when people subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. And then you get bonus episodes and you get it the second it comes out and it really helps us to to make them. Uh, but if you look at robhopkins.net, you can find, there's a whole lot of stuff on there. And then I'm on, I'm Rob in transition on Twitter. I refuse to call it X.
1: Same, and, same, same.
0: And uh, and I'm on various other Instagrams and things so you can find me there as well.
1: Lovely. And is there anything else? Thank you so much. I mean this has been really really interesting, lots to think about. Is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners, any final words?
0: Um um I part of the the research that I'm doing for this book is that there will be a chapter about an incredible jazz musician in the 60s and 70s called Sun Ra who Who, um, if people haven't heard of Sun Ra go to YouTube and look up Sun Ra and he was this extraordinary person who told a story about himself where he said "Uh, I'm not a human being I'm another order of being I'm actually an angel from Saturn and all of his band dressed in these extraordinary kind of space costumes but like all the time that's what they would wear if they needed to pop down the corner store for a a pint of milk and uh, he was this incredible sort of everyday utopian <clears throat> i read somebody described him once as an everyday utopian which i think was beautiful and he once said uh, we've tried the possible and it failed and it's now time to try the impossible and so i'm i'm a great believer that we need to be much more um embrace the impossible in the work that we do in the movements that we do and uh, the institute for the future in the u.s on their window it says something like uh, any um any solution for the future that doesn't seem at first ridiculous. Uh, No, every solution. Anyway, something about uh, any solution should at first seem ridiculous. And so in my talks, I always urge people to be more ridiculous uh, in the work that you do. You know, this needs to be, we need to be bringing together arts and music and play. And, uh, you know, the, the changes we need to make in the next 10 years should feel more like a carnival and more like a party than like some sort of dour kind of protest march. And and I think that, uh, you know, if we can bring together all the the artists and musicians and the activists, we can create something with a very different sort of a feel to it, really. Like, um, like a Sun Ra show.
1: Like a Sun Ra show. I'll have to look that up. I have not heard of that musician. That sounds really interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Rob. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, good luck with all your research and everything. It sounds like you are... Very busy as always, Um, but yeah, very very important work.
0: Bless you. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: This is the podcast version of One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show, broadcast every Tuesday at 11am on BCFM Radio, available on 93.2 FM on digital radio and on the BCFM website. The show was produced and presented by Shona Gemfrey, You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.